Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Authority of the King, today with a message titled, The Battle for the Kingdom. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Joseph Tan was a Romanian pastor who ministered in his country when the communists were actively persecuting the church. He managed to flee his country and was studying theology in Oxford, but in 1972, he went home, inspired by Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And yet he was fearful. And soon after his return, he began to preach the gospel and harassment and arrest came quickly. One day during interrogation, an officer threatened to kill him, and Pastor Ton said, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country on tapes now. If you kill me, I'll be sprinkling them with my blood. Whoever listens to them after that will say, I'd better listen. This man sealed it with his blood. That will speak ten times louder than before. So go on and kill me. I will win the supreme victory. Well, the officer sent him home. And Pastor Joseph Ton then wrote the following. He said, that gave me pause. For years, I was a Christian who was cautious because I wanted to survive. I had accepted all the restrictions the authorities put on me because I wanted to live. Now I wanted to die and they wouldn't oblige. Now I could do whatever I wanted in Romania. For years, I wanted to save my life and I was losing it. Now I wanted to lose it and I was winning it. We started studying Matthew chapter 10, and in this passage, we noted that Jesus was giving his disciples their first ministry assignment. It was a short one, limited to the Jewish towns in the villages in Galilee. They will encounter opposition, but the opposition will be of a minor variety. Some homes in some villages would not receive them or listen to them. But like any good teacher, Jesus is not hiding from them what's coming. This short-term experience is getting them ready for their lifelong ministry in which they will establish a church for the whole world. And the mild opposition they now face will be ratcheted up. It's like a stiff wind blowing that becomes a typhoon. He is sending them as sheep in the midst of wolves. All of that's set against a background. Jesus, as Matthew, has been portraying him as the great king. With him, the the great future kingdom of heaven has already started to tumble into the present hour. Jesus preached great sermons and the crowds were growing daily. Matthew has shown us his great miracles, which included cleansing lepers and raising up paralyzed persons and demanding nature obey him, driving out demons and even raising the dead. What can stop the kingdom of heaven that he has inaugurated? And yet this battle for the kingdom is just heating up. And that's what makes this passage strange. Any other king fighting for his kingdom would arm his warriors to the teeth. This one sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. With that as our background, we come to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, first of all, let's notice that Jesus is not hiding from the twelve what lies before them. He wants them to know that opposition will come. The kingdom of heaven will not be welcomed by some. Indeed, very strong hostility is on the way. A bloody, violent response is coming. The backlash to what Jesus is doing is hardly begun, but the longer they serve their king, the greater will be the aggression against them. Notice the progression in verses 17 to 22. First, it will happen in Jewish circles. That's what you find in verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And Jewish synagogues were not just a place of worship. They also would hold court and punish transgressors of the law. And they were not permitted by Roman law to mete out the death penalty, but they could administer floggings and whippings. So a court would be convened in which they would call for a local verdict against any disturbance. And three judges would then be required, one man to read the scripture, the second who would count each stroke, and the third to give the command for each stroke. And each synagogue was permitted to whip someone to a maximum of 39 lashes. That, says Jesus, is what's coming from the synagogues. Again, notice the progression. Persecution begins with the Jews, but now it moves to the Gentiles. Look again at verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Clearly, Jesus is now not speaking to them of their short-term assignment. That assignment, which was described in verses 5 to 15, is limited to the Jewish people. There, Jesus has commanded the twelve not to go beyond the Jewish towns and villages, and that assignment was kind of a, you know, a warm-up. It's a, a training ground for the larger one that lies ahead. But now in verse 16 and following, which speaks about the more distant future, in the future, no such limitation to the towns of Israel will then exist. And when that occurs, the Gentiles will also haul them into court. So then, how will opposition come? Well, Jesus envisions that it will come through legal means of both Jews and Gentile court systems. Indeed, the repeated phrase, they will deliver you or hand you over, is the exact same wording that is used when describing Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Judas, we're told, handed Jesus over to the authorities. It speaks of betrayal and a miscarriage of justice. Now, let me take this into the contemporary world. You know, all over the world, there are Christians, especially among pastors and evangelists, but also among ordinary believers who are right now in prison for their faith. In countries such as Burma, China, Eritrea, North Korea, Pakistan, Vietnam, many of the Muslim countries, sometimes believers are put into prison even without a trial. Sometimes they're unable to see their families for months, even years. Sometimes they're forced to endure horrible conditions. But, but lest you despair, please understand that if they're able to burn church buildings to the ground and even imprison God's people, they won't be able to stop the church or the gospel. Some reports say that as an example today, there may be a church that might be approaching the size of a million people in the future in Iran. 
tell me, when has that happened before? We're living in remarkable days. This is what Jesus had in mind. Betrayal and a miscarriage of justice as a part of the warfare to stop his kingdom from advancing. Now, we should all know this because all over the Muslim world, there are countries that enact a blasphemy law. Anyone sharing the gospel with a Muslim is blaspheming. Look at verses 19 to 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In other words, this seeming threat against the kingdom is in fact a great opportunity for the kingdom. God the Father has made a promise. He will send God the Holy Spirit to give you words to say so that when in a hostile court situation, when you don't know the questions that might be asked of you, he will at that very hour tell you what to say so that Christ will be honored through you. And by the way, That was actually fulfilled in Paul's letter to the Philippians. The drama behind that letter is that Paul is in prison. He's awaiting an appearance before Caesar's tribunal where he will be found either guilty or innocent. And depending on the outcome, he will be either executed or released very shortly after the trial. And so Paul says, and I'm reading Philippians 1 verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, indeed, as Paul is looking forward to his trial, he uses words like eager expectation, and then words like full courage, and Christ will be honored. Indeed, as he looks forward to that fateful trial, the words he uses are, I shall rejoice. He is anticipating great joy, Now, since he does not know how he will act at the moment of his trial or exactly what the questions that he will be required to answer, and yet he's confident. How so? Because Jesus has promised that that the Holy Spirit will speak through him at that very moment. Back to the Bible Canada broadcast the teaching of the Bible so the people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Newfeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. No, Jesus promised that opposition would come through legal means, but he said more. He also said that opposition will also come from family members. Look again at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
I always have to get my head around this. You know, when I came to Christ, my parents, well, they rejoiced. But let me tell you of a man by the name of Philip. It's not his real name, but Philip lives in North Africa. He's married. He's the firstborn in his family. He's extremely wealthy because he was put over his father's international business ventures. And when Philip came to Christ, along with his wife and his children, his father disowned him. So now, instead of managing great wealth, Philip now has a job cleaning manure out of barns. He says, in his own words, knowing Jesus has made this all worthwhile. But that's it, isn't it? If he were merely making sacrifices, it would not be worthwhile. But if Philip traded in a treasure that was only good for this life, for one that has far greater value, and that for all of eternity, it was indeed worthwhile. It was the investment of a lifetime. See, opposition through legal means and opposition through family members, but also opposition from the values of the culture in which we live. Look again at verse 22a. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that doesn't mean every single human being. Of course not. There are a great many human beings that find the gospel to be welcome, who long to hear more of it. See, I always just assume that. But when Jesus says what he does, it means that the gospel will not be accepted among all cultures. Jews will reject it, for it speaks against their legalistic righteousness, and Romans will reject it for a very different reason. In A.D. 73, in the city of Rome, there were 265 statues to various deities guarding all of the intersections of Rome. Jesus claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one came to the Father except by him. And that was offensive, and Christians were hated for that. I mean, often they were charged with being atheists. They denied the Greco-Roman gods. And in the Middle Ages, Christians were hated by the Roman church for Bible-believing Christians freely testified that it was not the church that had the grace to forgive sins, that Christ alone had that power. For your insistence that forgiveness came only through Christ and not through the church, well, you could be burned to death. And in many parts of the world today, Christians are hated because they point to Christ as the only mediator between God and man. And in the West, in, in nations like Canada, we're hated because Christ speaks against the idols in our culture. I know we don't have 265 statues to our various gods, but our false gods are also before us. They are the gods of materialism, and the pursuit of wealth is the highest good. They're the gods of tolerance of personal sin. They're the gods of self and the denial of any sinfulness. Speak against these gods, and your culture will hate you, just like the synagogues and the pagan courts did in that day. But if persecution is so sure to come, what are we to do? How can we protect ourselves? And, and what's more, if Jesus' kingdom is to overcome the whole world, well then, how should we respond to opposition in such a way that we will win the battle for the kingdom. Now, before we look at the details, please don't think that what Jesus is saying doesn't mean, for instance, that we shouldn't engage in apologetics. Apologetics means to learn to give a response for the Christian faith against its critics. It's to provide a reasonable defense. For instance, how do we respond to those that say that, you know, the theory of evolution has canceled out the need for a creator? 
Or how do we respond to those who argue that miracles are not possible or who argue that the manuscripts in the Bible that describe the life of Jesus are not reliable? Or or those who say that if you believe that Christ is the only way, that's only going to lead to intolerance or, 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 or a host of other objections. Christians are told to contend for the faith, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. When Jesus told us not to prepare in advance what to say when dragged before hostile courts, he didn't mean that we should never prepare in any circumstances. See, the very fact that we're told to always be ready to give a defense, that's in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, that indicates that preparation is required. The same is true for preachers who prepare sermons. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Preparation, Bible study, learning proper principles to understand the word. I mean, that's important not only for preachers, but for all of us. And furthermore, it's important that, that all of us be trained to know how to share our faith well. We don't just say whatever comes to mind at the last moment. I mean, there's a funny story I heard years ago that I think bears repeating. I mean, two pastors were talking about how they prepare sermons. One pastor, I'm going to call him Herman, said he studied the Greek text. He outlined the passage. He took notes on the grammar of the passage. Then he worked hard at making application. And the other pastor, I'm going to call him Larry, he just said that he waited for the Spirit to tell him what to say when he got into the pulpit. And so Larry convinced Herman to do the same next Sunday. Well, they met on the following Monday, and Larry said, Did you do your usual preparation this week, Herman? And Herman said, No, I didn't. So Pastor Larry said, Did the Spirit speak to you when you got into the pulpit this Sunday? And Pastor Herman said, Well, yeah, he did. Well, great, said Pastor Larry. What did the Spirit say? And and Pastor Herman said, I heard him speak so clearly. I've never heard him speak so clearly in my life. He said, and I heard him say it. He said, Herman, you've been lazy. (laughs) You see, Jesus is not telling us not to study, to be a worker approved by God. He said, when the hour of your court appearance is at hand, God will give you what to say. See, what Jesus is describing here is very specific to one experience where hostility against his followers becomes so large that it becomes dangerous, where there is rejection, hatred, imprisonment, and even death. So does this happen to all followers of Jesus? Well, Listen to Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But suffering comes in various forms. It can come in the form of rejection. Do you remember Luke 6.22? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. See, notice here, it it only refers to insults, excluding you from places and events because you're a believer, making fun of you, scorning and insulting you for your faith. That's one form of suffering for Christ, and it's a mild form. Jesus promised his disciples more. Some believers have had to pay more, and that's what this text is about. So how should we respond? Listen to Jesus' words as a part of verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The key here is that endurance to the end is necessary. The end means either the end of this present sinful age, or it means the end of one's life. 
Here's the doctrine of the perseverance of the elect. Here, according to Jesus, there is no place for easy believism or a sense that so many seem to have that they can live their lives in such a way that, that will deny the gospel. Jesus demands of his followers that they remain faithful even in the face of impending death. And as we continue this study, we're going to come to verses 32 and 33. And so let me briefly summarize that now. Jesus says that everyone who acknowledges him before men, he will also acknowledge them before his Father in heaven. See, Jesus is not asking his followers to endure. He's demanding it. He's not saying that only martyrs are saved or only people thrown into prison are in the gospel for real, but he is demanding that those who are his never turn from his calling in their lives. Indeed, it is the case that those who are truly his do endure to the end, and those who are not truly his, well, they fall away and are lost. He demands that we lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. He demands that we be prepared to suffer the loss of all things, but that we should never be prepared to suffer the loss of faithfulness to him. And this is the battle for the kingdom. Those who belong to Christ are not promised health and riches and the favor of our society. We are promised a battle, but we're also promised something that is more precious than anything else. We're promised that our Lord and Savior will not deny us before the Father. We are promised a rich reward, a reward that is so rich that these present difficulties will seem but small in comparison to the great glory that will be revealed. Heavenly Father, fix our eyes on that which is to come so that the suffering of this present hour would not seem so great. Make us faithful unto the end, we pray in Jesus' name. John, thanks for your message today. Quick question, when do we know it's time to go? If, if we're being persecuted, when, when is it time to jump ship? Yeah, and, and I, <laughs> how does one give an, an exacting answer to that? Because I don't know that we can, but I, I do think there are a couple of principles. I mean, sometimes it's not possible to jump ship. And, and I have a memory, uh, Ben, of, of, a, of a dear Christian brother in Romania, uh, and he was leading a wonderful Christian movement and it was in the height of communism, and there was a great deal of pressure put on him. And then from the president himself, he got an opportunity to, to be able to go to the United States. Um, and he decided not to go because he felt that to abandon ship at that point in time would put the rest of his his church at risk. And so he decided to remain. So, I mean, there are tons of stories. I don't always know the answers, but they're there. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Being that we celebrate Thanksgiving this month, we wanted to make sure to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your encouragement, prayers, gifts all mean so much. We're also grateful for your notes, letting us know that Back to the Bible Canada is impacting your daily walk with Christ. Sarah wrote, Dr. John's stories illustrate so clearly how to live out the truths of Scripture. Jordan wrote, your message was so timely for my heart. And special thanks to you for making this Bible teaching ministry possible. And don't forget to request your 2022 Scripture calendar based on Dr. John's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. 
It's our free Bible resource this month. Or if you'd like to make a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.